0: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Veterans Day edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... We'll hear how Atlanta-based Caring Works has a program to help homeless veterans. Plus, Navy veteran Dr. Amy Stevens shares her military experience and talks about creating the Georgia Military Women Facebook group to serve as a resource for other female veterans. And a conversation with author Colin Calhoun about his book titled Mended Wings, the Vietnam War Experience Through the Eyes of 10 American Purple Heart Helicopter Pilots and we'll also speak with Clarence Clyde Romero, Jr., one of the pilots profiled in the book. All those conversations are coming up on this Veterans Day edition of Closer Look, but we'll begin with what is the tradition on this day, the ceremonial laying of a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier, followed by remarks from the president.
2: And today, we pay homage to the unrelenting bravery and dedication that distinguishes all those who have earned the title of American Veteran. It's an honor that not only a small percentage of Americans can claim and one that marks those who are able to claim it as brothers and sisters. It's a badge of courage that unites across all ages, regardless of background, because to be a veteran is to endured and survive challenges most Americans will never know. You've come through the trials and testing, brave dangers and deprivations face down Tragic realities of war and death. You've done it for us.
0: You've done it for America.
1: And this year, for the first time in a century, visitors are being allowed to walk on the plaza, and they can lay flowers in front of that tomb as well. This is all part of a two-day centennial event. Also, in our honor of Veterans Day, there is free entrance to national parks. Now, here in Georgia, that includes Arabia Mountain, Kennesaw Mountain, Chattahoochee River, and the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site. Now coming up, Closer Look's annual Veterans Day special. We're back in a moment.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF.
1: And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, there are around 19 million U.S. veterans as of this year. And believe this, yes, there are still World War II veterans. In fact, at the end of September, there were more than 240,000 World War II veterans still alive. And that's out of 16 million who served in that war. And it's estimated that there are 234 deaths per day. Remarkable numbers. Now, here in Georgia, it's estimated there are more than 4,000 World War II veterans. But It's also believed that these women and men, who are our nation's oldest veterans, that they're being taken care of. But we also know it's been difficult to get an accurate account of those veterans within the homeless population. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development estimates that f- more than 40,000 veterans are homeless on any given night. But over the course of a year, approximately twice that many experience homelessness. The Atlanta-based nonprofit CaringWorks has a program designed to help homeless veterans, and they're also going to use an artistic way to discuss the issue as well. Joining me now is Caring, Work, is Caring Work's CEO, Dr. Carol Collard. Thanks for taking the time; I appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Let's begin here. I gave the the estimate from HUD regarding the projected number of homeless veterans. We really just don't know how many are unsheltered and experience chronic homelessness, do we?
3: It is a difficult number to capture. um, And especially in the time of the pandemic, we have not been able to um, take an accurate count of unsheltered individuals experiencing homelessness. Right now, the number is targeted at 764 for the number of veterans experiencing homelessness in Georgia.
1: That's in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Any idea of the within that number within the Atlanta region?
3: Um that number is from the City of Atlanta count, so it may there, there are areas of Georgia where mm-hmm. they're not taking account, so it's really hard to get an accurate number.
1: Former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed in his administration had said that they had, they being the city government, thought they had ended the homelessness problem for veterans. And and there's been some controversy over whether or not that really happened. But this is something that your organization can confirm that, yes, there are homeless veterans on Atlanta streets right now.
3: Um, Yes, there are. I think what needs to be clarified and maybe um, it hasn't been previously is that there's more of a functional end to homelessness, and not to split hairs, but it simply means that homelessness is not over. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not over for any population, but is what is the length of time that it takes once you've experienced it for you to be rehoused? And if that can happen within 30 days, then we consider it a functional end to homelessness.
1: Dr. Collard, someone listening may say, well, listen, this is what the VA is supposed to do. They're supposed to, they provide services for our nation's veterans. Where is the breakdown through your lens? We're not blaming the VA, but clearly there is a breakdown here through your lens. How do you see how this happens?
3: Um, Well, it's just one person speaking. And obviously, from my perspective, I think we're just simply overwhelmed with the volume. You Mm -hmm. know, we have had armed conflict. For the last 20 years. And those numbers of individuals coming back are coming back to us. We're still learning mm-hmm. um, what their experiences are and what the impact of those experiences are. And so I will say locally, I'm sorry. No, interrupt. go ahead. No, finish. Locally, we have a very strong partnership with the VA. We have um, funding that we receive to serve the um, individual veterans in our residential treatment program. We also are partnering with them on a telehealth opportunity. So there is work to be done and work that is getting done, but I think they are simply overwhelmed with the volume.
1: And so what you're saying also to Dr. Collard that folks should understand, we're not just talking about maybe veterans from Desert Storm or, or even prior to that Vietnam War. We're talking about veterans, so person military personnel who are returning just within the last two decades here.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, the average age of the veterans that we're currently serving in our programs is about 50. So there are, of course, older veterans, but there are more people experiencing um, PTSD, you know, all the time.
1: Which requires mental health resources. <clears throat> exactly. Dr. Collett, what stories are you hearing that you can share from our veterans as to how they ended up being unsheltered, how they end up being in a situation where they now need your resources?
3: Um, well, Rose, as you might imagine, and you've probably heard from others, PTSD has been the the number one reason why um, soldiers returning um, from service are experiencing mental health uh, breakdowns. Unemployment, obviously, is another factor. And we have um, served, since we opened our doors almost 20 years ago, it's always been around 10 to 15% of the folks that we serve that are veterans. And what we are seeing is individuals who have you know, paid their, um, given their service, provided Uh uh, service to the community, but coming back and really struggling with that transition and that re-entry into society. So there are a couple of guys in particular um, that I would share with you Mm -hmm. who have had experiences. One of them was himself an addiction counselor um, and through because of his own experience with PTSD, found himself homeless. Um, and ultimately in our care, Um, but they can be helped. They can get back to a level of of stabilized care. They can contribute um, to the community, and we're seeing that kind of success every day with those
1: that we care for. Let's back up for a moment, Dr. Collard, and for folks who may not be familiar with Caring Works, this is at the core of what you all do, which is providing resources and also working with partners. You know, having partnerships uh, for our our unsheltered population and obviously those who are experiencing chronic homelessness. Uh, give a little backstory here, how you all came together.
3: Uh, certainly. So, Caring Works actually was the sister organization to an affordable housing developer, as I shared over 20 years ago, and we've evolved, um, become more independent from that developer to provide affordable housing and critical supports to people, individuals, and families experiencing homelessness in our community. Um, Over time, we've more specialized to serve what we call chronically homeless adults. Mm -hmm. And those are the individuals who have that intersection with homelessness, mental health, or other behavioral health disorders, or some other um, chronically disabling physical condition. And that's over time evolved. Um, We found that those individuals, although they make up maybe 20% of the entire homeless populations are experiencing homelessness, longer periods of time, more recurring bouts of homelessness, and, of course, have these unattended physical and mental health needs.
1: When you all are presented with resources that are needed for veterans, what is that process like? Because we, again, we mentioned there is the VA, but you all have specific initiatives and programs to help those veterans experiencing homelessness. Take our listeners through that process.
3: Sure. So we have, um, as I shared before, roughly about 15% of all that we serve are veterans. Um, But we do have specialized program, one of which is a permanent supportive housing program that we have targeted um, to veterans. When we are full, that serves 30 individuals at any given time. And it's a permanent, affordable apartment. They can stay for as long as they need to, and it's augmented with the kinds of social services and supports to help them to stabilize, make that transition from homelessness, identify those behavioral health or other challenges that they may be coping with. And so they're partnered with a case manager, they have peer support, and they also have access to other behavioral health care. The other program that we have is Hope House, where we have dedicated beds for veterans, and that program provides residential treatment to individual men who are experiencing homelessness.
1: Dr. Collett, I'm curious, and I know I've asked this question to so many folks in the nonprofit, you know, the space who help folks. Do you have enough beds, as I often hear, do you have enough beds to meet the, the demand?
3: Unfortunately, no, Rose. Um, that has been a chronic uh, challenge um, for those of us in this, in this field of work um, since the very beginning. The availability of affordable housing, the availability of resources for programs like Hope House, um, there is not enough. There is not enough support. I will say that the city of Atlanta in particular is a very supportive partner in making that effort, but we've got to find ways to better incentivize developers to be invested in creating more affordable housing. It benefits the veterans that we serve, but it also benefits all of the individuals who are experiencing homelessness as the number one cause, as we know, Mm -hmm. has to do with being able to identify affordable housing.
1: You know, earlier I asked you about uh, to share some stories of some our military personnel that you were helping as we wrap up. I would like for you to share a story that that sort of encapsulates something positive. Uh, I don't want to say happy ending, but uh, progress being made. And you mentioned a person's first name, if you like, or you don't have to, but something that illustrates the work that you all are doing and how important it is. If folks out there are thinking that, Maybe it's just a small percentage of veterans who are experiencing homeless, but whether it's one or 100 or 1,000, the work is needed.
3: Absolutely, Rose. One person experiencing homelessness is one too many. Um, the story that I often share with, with others is the story of Eugene, who came to us, as I said, um, from living on the street. This individual, um, is, uh, his avocation is as a runner. And even when he was experiencing homelessness, he found ways to to stay active. He camped out near a high school so that he would be able to access the track and be able to keep up obviously um, after hours when no one was there, but be able to to reclaim something that was very important to me. And he was interviewed um, last year actually by local media, and one of the proudest things that he was able to share was the number of awards and ribbons that he had received for running. And my takeaway, we've got countless other men. There's um, Mark, who's also um, been very active in volunteering and giving back to his neighbors at the RISE VA program. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of COVID and even after that was very involved in, in helping identify, um, you know, the health and safety, the PPE that we needed um, to share with his neighbors and just always volunteering. This is, it's so important for me to get people to understand that we are losing people who have so much to offer and contribute back to society when we look away. Um, And this is an opportunity. Thank you so much for this program for us to shed some light on a way that we can all help.
1: No, thank you. Dr. Carol Collard, CEO for Caring Works, talking about the program they have to help our nation's veterans. Dr. Collard, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work that you and your staff and so many other organizations are doing to help folks.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Culture Look's Veterans Day special continues here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. According to the Department of Labor's Veterans Employment and Training Service, there are nearly 2 million living women veterans in the U.S. Here in Georgia, it's estimated that's about maybe 93,000. Transitioning from active duty to civilian life for women quite often is different from their male counterparts. We've had that discussion many times on this program. And this has been an area of focus for Dr. Amy Stevens for some years now. So much... She founded and leads the Georgia Military Women Facebook Group. And Dr. Stevens served active duty for 11 years in the United States Navy and four years in the Navy Reserves. And Dr. Stevens, welcome and thank you for your many years of service.
4: Well, Rose, thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about women veterans. And we are all over the place. And, you know, most people don't even know that we exist. Uh, So anytime I can come out and talk like this, I, I really appreciate it.
1: Let's begin with a little bit of backstory here. What led you to join the Navy?
4: Uh, I think the same reason a lot of people do is um, a little bit of patriotism, followed by job opportunity. And in my case, I'm the gypsy of the family. I like to go places. So, uh, you know, I I had a blast. I traveled all over the world and uh, really enjoyed it. So there's a lot of different reasons why the people uh, join the military. Um, But I I can tell you, 99% of us would definitely do it all over again.
1: When you told your family that this is what you wanted to do, uh, what was the reaction? Just curious.
4: (laughs) Well, we are talking a long time ago. So, um, you know, it it was not that common at the time. I I signed up in 1979. I had already moved away from home. and was living in a different state. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had had a cousin who had been an Army nurse, had served in Vietnam, that they knew had influenced me. So they weren't that surprised because they they knew I was the type of person that would do something like that. So my family was very
1: supportive. How would you sum up your military, all the years in the military, especially in the Navy, your experience?
4: Uh, Yeah. You know, there's always ups and downs to every place that you go, Mm -hmm. but you meet such awesome people. It is like having a whole new family. You know, you have your home family, but you have your military family, and— Even though, you know, I don't look like a veteran, you know, I'm short and round. I got the white hair now. Uh, But, you know, once I I step up to somebody and say, hey, I served in the Navy, uh, all of a sudden I have a best friend, male or female. There's a camaraderie that civilians I don't think really get, but it's something very special that we all have.
1: And what service, what area were you in?
4: Uh, Well, I was a Navy lieutenant, and I started out in broadcasting. I was the officer in charge of a broadcasting station in Adak, Alaska. Uh, So that's isolated duty. was a little bit different up there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was two years in Yokosuka, Japan, um, and that's like just south of Tokyo. And I had an HRM unit, so Human Resources Management Mm -hmm. Unit. And part of my job was just helping with uh, cultural adjustment to being in Japan as well as other things like uh, substance abuse, um, equal opportunity, all of those kinds of things. That's what HR kind of does. Uh, My next tour of duty, I was a boot camp division officer in Orlando, Florida. Um, Very nice place, home of the mouse. I went right out and got (laughs) myself, um, you know, one of those season passes, and all my relatives came to visit and many friends. (laughs) So that was great. And um, then in Charleston, I was the XO of a Naval Reserve Center. That was an important time period for me um, because I adopted a child out of the South Carolina foster care system. Mm -hmm. So my son, Richard was 12 years old uh, when I adopted him while I was stationed on the waterfront in Charleston. And uh, finally from there, I uh, moved up to Washington, D.C. area, actually Maryland, and I was the Director of Education and Training for Naval Telecommunications Command. Hmm. And I did that for three years. And, you know, I like to tell people that, no, it wasn't Al Gore, it was me that invented the (laughs) internet. But, uh, you know, the reality is, you know, because I was the only non-communicator, because I was education and training. Mm-hmm. And I was, at that point, that was 1988-89, and I, I left the military active side on in 1990. I was taking people home to show them this thing called the Internet. <laughs> and, you know, seriously. So we were just starting, and, and I played a, a small role, perhaps, but in uh, updating all of the training for the Navy on communications because of this thing called the Internet. Wow. Um. What? So that was kind of awesome, and from there I did I did a few years in the reserves, um, and it, you know every place is different. But mm-hmm. again, it comes back to the people that you meet.
1: Absolutely, and
4: you know that that's what really makes the difference. And it, it, uh, I'm glad to say I still have friends from every single one of my duty stations, and uh, never expected to be working full time. It seems as <laughs> as I'm here with veterans now, but well, I let, really enjoy it.
1: And let's talk about that because transitioning from military duty to civilian life. I don't know what that was like for you, but for the women that you, your fellow female veterans, when you all have this conversation, what do you hear the most?
4: Well, I'll tell you about my own transition. Um, you know, as a Navy lieutenant, who wouldn't want to hire me, right? I had commanded, oh. you know, hundreds of personnel. I had, had oversight of millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment, could not get a decent job. And, and like many other veterans, especially women veterans who have a child at home that needs attention also, keep that in mind, Um, I did not transition well, is that I I was able to finish a master's degree in counseling, um, you know, at Johns Hopkins. But the thing is, um, especially back then, there weren't resources like what there are now. And Mm -hmm. I actually got to the point where I was going to lose my house. So I ended up selling my house, and I ended up renting a room for six months from somebody so that I wouldn't have to sleep in my car.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: That's how bad it was. And um and the thing is, you know, I said okay, you know, after time. It took about five years. And that's when I came down here to Atlanta to be with the US Department of Labor. And I am retired, you know, as a civil servant. But you know, people think it's just certain people. No, it's all of us and especially women, because we are caregivers by nature, most of us, and if we don't have kids, we got parents. Mm-hmm. We got responsibilities. Is that um, typically the male veteran is going to be more focused on career stuff, but typically women do struggle harder and, and end up having great, much greater financial problems. When I moved to Atlanta, I was $30,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was in 1995. Uh, you know, once I got myself a good government job, I worked during the day, I worked at night, and I worked on weekends to pay off that debt. And by then, my son was 20, 21 years old, but still, you know, it was definitely a challenge to do everything that I had to do.
1: And that experience, I'm imagining also with with you knowing firsthand, obviously understanding not just transitioning to civilian life, but all the other unique circumstances that our women veterans face. Was that behind you founding and now leading the Georgia Military Women Facebook Group?
4: Well, I'll I tell you, the, the the Facebook group is an amazing thing. It brings people together. It really is uh, unique. We have over 4,300 members all over Georgia. We have locations where people have meet up. In fact, I'm sitting out here in my car outside the Olive Garden because ten of us were inside getting our our free uh, <laughs> uh, Veterans Day lunch. <laughs> yes. So thank you, Olive Garden. It's delicious. I have leftovers in my backseat. Um, but you know, it's great. But tell you, I really didn't get involved with veterans as much when I first. Got off of active duty, because, you know, what what does a woman veteran look like, right? (laughs) You know, the guys wear the ball caps and the T-shirts, and and the ladies don't. But it wasn't until um, uh, 2008 when the economy tanked. By then, I was out of my job with civil service, had started a private practice as a licensed professional cancer. The Georgia National Guard needed somebody to be their director of psychological health, and I was chosen for that job. I ended up working for the Guard. For three and a half years, during one of the time periods when there was the, a huge amount of deployment to Afghanistan, is that the typical soldier in an airman in the National Guard in the state of Georgia is amazing because they are multiple deployers. They don't go just one time and come mm-hmm. home, they go five times, six times, eight times. And as their director of psychological health, I heard all the stories and it really um, made me realize that especially women, were disconnected Mm -hmm. and that they needed others to talk to. They really did. And there was no real good way to do that. And, you know, this was, you know, we're talking 2011, 2012, uh, Facebook, Became the entry places. I started off with about a hundred ladies with the National Guard, mm-hmm. and it's grown and grown and grown. We're very diverse. We we're not a nonprofit, by the way. We don't have any money, so nobody called me asking for money. But what we do is have information, resources, mm-hmm. and we talk the same language. So it doesn't matter what you look like, how old you are, how young you are, what ser- what service branch you were in, uh, whether you served one day in the military or finished out your career we we have generals in our group and we we have e-1s the Mm -hmm. lowest you can get and And so so, you know this is amazing
1: this is a a a space a safe space absolutely
4: yeah Mm -hmm. where women can talk and we screen for membership only women veterans that live in georgia are allowed in
1: our group how what's the feedback that you get dr stevens from your fellow female women veterans here
4: Uh, A lot of it is that they just didn't know there were that many other women veterans. Like I said, you know, we don't walk around with ball caps. You know, it's that kind of thing where you, you know, I can think of a particular friend who just left the the restaurant, and I waved to her as we were talking, is that she and I went to church for a long time. um, And one day she stood up when they were doing the the veterans recognition, and I'm saying, Carol, you know, this is for the veterans. She's looked at me and said, Amy, I was in the Army. Hmm. I said, what? And I had known her for 10 years. It's not something that comes up in casual conversation necessarily among women, hmm. and um, and you find that all over Georgia that there are people that really want to connect and and be with other people that value their service and understand what it was like, and oh you yeah, know, and we do have needy people in our in our group, but mostly our group is just regular folks did their service, did their time did a good job and, and now they've transitioned back home.
1: And Dr. Stevens, how has this group helped you personally as we begin to wrap up?
4: Well, as I, as I'm a, an older person, I'm one of the oldest. Um, it gives the purpose of life because mm-hmm. I know that we help people. We've helped, you know, the homeless. I heard your previous uh, speaker, um, you know, we've taken women out of cars, homeless women, veterans, you don't find in the shelters. Mm-hmm. We find them sleeping on people's couches. And, and I've, and a number of cases help women that were actually sleeping in there find shelter. Um, most of the women are very capable individuals that so they just need a, a hand up, not a help hand out, mm-hmm. um, and they get back on track. That has been extremely rewarding. At this point, of course, I get a lot of feedback from from ladies I don't even remember their names, but mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, you help point me towards a resource, and now I'm doing really well, and I just want you to know that. And, and that's really what keeps me going. So. It makes me feel good, and it helps them. It's a win situation. I'm so glad. And I hope that people will look us up on Facebook. It's, um, the closed group is GA Military Women on Facebook. There's four questions to answer that are screening questions. So we want to make sure that you are actually a veteran, a female veteran living in, in Georgia. Hmm.
1: Dr. Amy Stevens founded and leads the Georgia Military Women Facebook group also served active duty for 11 years in the United States Navy and four years in the Navy Reserves. Again, Dr. Stevens, thank you for your many years of service and thank you for the what you're providing for so many. I really appreciate you taking the time.
4: Well, and thank you so much for having me. Hope you have a great day. Happy Veterans Day to everybody. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye.
5: Oh, where have you been, my blue son? And where have you been, my darling young one?
3: Victor Frankel, who survived the death camps in World War II, wrote a book
4: called Man's Search for Meaning. You know, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in suffering. And for those of us who suffered because of
3: Vietnam, uh, that's been our quest uh, ever since.
5: And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. hard
1: That is former U.S. Senator Max Cleland in the 2017 PBS documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, The Vietnam War. Cleland died earlier this week. He was 79 years old. A Vietnam veteran, he entered politics in 1971. But three years earlier, he would be severely injured in the war by a grenade. Cleland would have both legs amputated above the knee and his right forearm. As declared and recognized by Congress, the Vietnam War began in actually February 1961 and lasted until May 1975. And it is estimated of the 2.7 million women and men who served in Vietnam... It's been documented that 58,220 were killed. As they returned home from Vietnam, the reception for these soldiers was quite different as in our nation's past wars. In the book, Mended Wings, the Vietnam War Experience Through the Eyes of 10 American Purple Heart Helicopter Pilots, author and former Army helicopter pilot himself, Colin Calhoun, pro- Callan Calhoun profiles 10 Vietnam veterans with their stories and in their own words. He joins me. I'm also joined by U.S. Army helicopter of the 101st Airborne Division C Troop, then Captain Clarence Clyde Romero, Jr., also known as Bro Clyde. I love that. But he retired as a full colonel from the Air Force National Guard in 1992. Gentlemen, thank you, first of all, for your service on this Veterans Day and welcome to the program.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Polly Calhoun, I want to start with you. You tell the reader early in the book, quote, I never set out to be an Army helicopter pilot, so here's my question. How did it happen?
5: <laughs> well, uh, I was at um, going through air assault school while I was uh, in college going through ROTC, and uh, we were tramping through the, tramping through the woods and uh, came out into a landing zone where a, or a pickup zone, I guess, technically, and the uh, uh, they had brand new Black Hawk helicopters that were going to take us uh, from one point to the other. This was, would have been 1980, or excuse me, 19, yeah 1980, mm-hmm. I guess. And it was during the summer, it was hot, and I got on board the helicopter. And, of course, back then, we all thought we wanted to be uh, General Patton, you know, the one that George <laughs> C. Scott played yeah. in the movie, not the real one. <laughs> and so that was what my dream was. And uh, But I was tired and hot and sweaty. I got on that helicopter, the doors were open, and as it started to lift off, the wind started blowing through the cockpit and I smelled the cologne coming off the pilot in the front seat. And uh, it suddenly just hit me like a load of bricks. I thought, you know, this guy's gonna drop me off in the woods in Kentucky. And then um, uh, after that, he's gonna go home, go to the officer's club go, go back to mama. And I was going to be, uh, you know, trumping through the woods and probably wouldn't get back to the barracks till one in the morning. And that's what I said. I want to be that guy, you know, whether that was a good impression of helicopter pilots or not, that's what I wanted to do.
1: And Colonel Romero, your story is quite different because you wanted to fly from an early age growing up in the Bronx.
2: Yeah. uh, That's what I always wanted to do. Uh, The war was right in the midst of me going to high school in New York, Uh, and um, I made it work. Uh, It wasn't easy, but I did make it work. Uh, The war at the time was extremely unpopular, Mm -hmm. and being a minority uh, from uh, from the New York City area, it was a, a tough choice, but it was something I wanted to do.
1: And in the book, you talk about the extensive flight training that you went through, you experienced some racism, but as you just mentioned there, through perseverance and grit, you did not give up because you were determined to fly yeah it was
2: different it was um uh, people don't remember in the 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 late 60s uh america was going through a big racial upheaval uh dr king had been uh, assassinated there were riots of watts detroit uh and the vietnam war and then people don't also realize the cold war was on uh Mm -hmm. we were we had troops stationed in europe ready to fight the russians so it was um it was a tough choice, but I had to. This is what I wanted to do, and uh, I did it. Uh, the military did provide me with the training I wanted. Uh, it's a totally different military now, and like mm-hmm. I said, I stayed in the reserves and I saw the trans the transformation. But as our former uh, ter- chairman of the Joint Chief, who just passed away, Colin Powell, mm-hmm. he can if you read his book, he experienced uh, pretty much what I experienced.
1: Mm-hmm. Pilot Calhoun. Before uh, we return our conversation to Colonel Romero, what prompted you to write *Mended Wings*?
5: Uh, well, I was in flight school in 1984. I used to go out on the, the flight line, and they, we had the old Huey birds out there that come back from Vietnam. They were just peppered with patches over the bullet holes, little square one-inch patches. And the instructor pilots I had were by and large uh, Vietnam vets, and they'd walk out on the flight line and look at one of those helicopters and say, you know, that's that's the air, oh, you know, 672, that's the aircraft I flew out of Camp Evans in 1969 or whatever, and they they tear up a little bit. Um, and I just always looked up to these guys, even way back then, I thought, man, I need I need to write, somebody needs to write their stories. And then mm-hmm. I went to Fort Ord, California, was an Scout platoon leader and all my senior warrant officers and the um, senior uh, field grade officers were all Vietnam vets. I looked up to them as my heroes. Guys like Clyde, they're my heroes. Uh, they trained me to be the best Army helicopter pilot, the best Army officer I could be. And and I even way back then in the '80s, I resolved somebody's got to write a book book about this. And I almost I almost want to apologize because uh, it just took me so long to do it. I had to break genre and, and get away from the fiction that I normally write. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I just I said I got to do this. Well, I can still honor these guys because that's what Mended Wing is all about, is honoring guys like Clyde Romero. And, uh, you know, Clyde, I know you're looking at him on the screen. He, he looks like a young a spring chicken out there. He's very healthy. But all these guys are in their 70s and 80s now. Mm-hmm. Colonel Romero,
1: and, and I wish we had more time because we could really, and, and listeners, when they read your story. But I want to ask you, Colonel, how many times did your, a copter you were flying, take direct hit?
2: Oh, I was a scout helicopter uh, pilot. Uh, scouts were pretty much like the Indian scouts that we had during um, our nation pressing out west. I took fire every day.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I know I'm laughing now, but we I flew in an area called the astra Valley. Mm-hmm. It was called the Valley of Death. And um, I took fire every day. Uh, and uh, when you're 19 years old, you're bulletproof. I was I felt I was bulletproof. I got shot down several times. I got wounded several times, but I took it in stride because I believed in what the nation was doing in Vietnam was uh, was correct. And so I survived.
1: But you often flew wounded as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because um, we were told uh, that even though if you were wounded or you got hurt or shrapnel took a hit, Every pilot wants to fly. And, every, every, and there, there isn't a pilot out there that will tell you he doesn't like the flight surgeon. The flight surgeon will ground you. The worst thing to do is go through flight school, which is a year long, go through transition, and then get grounded. And Colin can back me up on this. Uh, everybody hates the flight surgeon. And so you got wounded. And as long as it wasn't mortal, you patched yourself up and you flew. I mean, that, that was it. I mean, nobody ever wanted to be grounded. Nobody.
1: But you lost fellow pilots too, did you not?
2: Oh God, yes. Yeah. Uh, we went into we went into Laos for Lamson Seven One Nine. Uh, we lost a total of four crews, and uh, yeah, it and the uh, one crew was body not recovered until nineteen ninety five in Laos.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, it was a uh, it, it was a dangerous occupation.
1: Pilot Calhoun, as you are collecting these stories from the pilots and. Colonel Romero, Bro Clyde, as they call him. What is what's what's your what's been your takeaway as you are collecting these? You have collected these stories from these pilots.
5: Yeah, you know what really surprised me, uh, Rose, is, and I did not know what to expect when I set out on this. And there's ten guys in this book, mm-hmm. and uh, I will say that that this is the case, in, including, and I don't know if, if if Clyde will even want to mention it, but uh, including Clyde, I think every one of these guys, they, they all, they all definitely left things on the battlefield. Some of them left body parts on the battlefield. They, they all came home injured to one degree or another. But what really surprised me is they, they managed to overcome the, the physical injuries. Even, even one of my vets was a paraplegic. I had another in there who had some brain injuries. They all overcame that and they're all very happy with where they are today in their lives. But what they could never let go of is the guilt of the people they knew who didn't come back. And they, they still have trouble uh, resolving that in their own minds. It's, it's that, oh, why me? You know, what, why did God pick me to come home when all these other heroes didn't make it home? And again, Clyde is, Clyde's my hero, and he hates it when I say that because I, he'll, he'll say, no, I'm not the hero. The guys that didn't come home are the heroes. And that's the typical refrain. That you'll get from, from Vietnam vets. Well,
1: Colonel Romero, what about your fellow soldiers that didn't get to come home the way that you did? How have you Oh yeah, to have that? a little Oh yeah, uh,
2: I have survivor's guilt, a no doubt. Um, i a just give you a very quick story. a was walking out uh, as a little a scout pilot, and a platoon leader, Wilbur a Searcy, Arkansas. And I'm from New York City, 9 million strong. Searcy is a wide spot on the road in Arkansas. He says, Clyde, I want to fly. And I said, sir, you can fly any time you want. He says, I want to fly. So he takes my sortie. He goes into the Astro Valley, and he gets killed. In fact, he gets shot, and everybody thinks it's me because the observer flew the helicopter back. And everybody says, Clyde got shot. Clyde's killed. And they go looking, and they go to my room. Uh, to collect my stuff, to send it home. And I'm there. They said, what happened? I said, uh, Latimer took my took my uh, story. And uh, I have survivor's guilt over that. I subsequently have, uh, have closed the book on that because I ended up meeting his wife at the time and his sister, who I'm very close with at this time. And she's a member of the Gold Star family. Mm-hmm. And this happened numerous times uh, in Vietnam. People that you were eating lunch with one day and they got shot down and killed. It it was just uh, the way it was. So, yeah, I do have survivor's guilt. I've pushed through it, but it'll stay with me until I pass.
1: Colonel, let's talk about when you returned home and that transition back to civilian life. I know we don't have enough Uh, time for you to fully describe that, but what can uh, you share?
2: It was an unpopular war. Uh, When you came back, Nobody cared. And how I know that difference is, is that I stayed in the Garden Reserve and uh, we were subsequently, uh, were were support units for Desert Storm, Desert Shield, which people don't realize that's 30 years ago, 1990. And when those guys came back, there was a parade in New York City, if you remember. Uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. There was nothing like that for us. Zero. Nothing. In fact, it was almost an embarrassment to say that you were a Vietnam veteran. Uh, it Now the tables have turned, and I can thank Colin for writing the book on that, because now when people see you wear a hat or something, thank you for your service, Vietnam, and all that. But since we didn't win that war, it was an unpopular war, and um, I nobody hardly ever knew I was a Vietnam veteran, let alone a helicopter pilot, and being a minority, mm-hmm. even less. We were like the Tuskegee Airmen uh, 2.0, and there were <laughs> roughly... We were roughly 400 pilots out of 35,000 helicopter pilots who were minority in that war.
5: Mm. And, and Rose, if sure. I could just interject, Absolutely. I just want to be sure to get this message across to your listeners: uh, the Vietnam, you know, the, the World War II generation has been called the greatest generation for good reason. Uh, in my book, I call the Vietnam Vet generation the Forgotten Generation. You know, after I've thought about it, I think a better word would, to use would have been the abused generation because when they came home, like Clyde said. Uh, We told them to shut up and go away. We didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so the point I want to make is on this Veterans Day, to your listeners out there, if you see one of these guys or gals with a Vietnam vet cap on, you need to walk up to them and please say thank you for your service. But let me tell you something else you can tell them. Tell them welcome home because they never heard that when they came home and they damn well deserve it. Uh, And so I'm asking your listeners to please do that on this day. And and really, any day you see one of these Vietnam vets out there, we treated them very poorly. And I think they deserve our our thanks and our pride now.
1: Colonel Romero, it's been some years now since you have returned to civilian life. Uh, What do you do? What's your hobby now?
2: Actually, uh, um, I own a a hobby shop in Marietta. And uh, I used to race motorcycles up to about two years ago. I got too old for that. But now I just uh, I race slot cars. That's what I like to do. That's it's safe and it's easy. And uh, And it's on the ground. Enjoy it. (laughs) It's on the ground. Right. I haven't flown an airplane since 2015. I'm a retired American Airlines captain. I haven't flown an airplane in six years. Have no desire to do that. And uh, I like uh, high end sports cars. So I work on my high end sports cars.
1: What is your message, uh, Colonel Romero, to your fellow veterans on this day?
2: That's a difficult question, but uh, I I want I want the the fellow veterans to know that we shared a a joint experience in that war and that we can look each other in the eye and know what we did, even though we didn't do we didn't win that war. But uh, I I want them to know that uh, all the all the veterans that served in that war, we all know what we went through. And
1: Polly Calhoun, you get the final word on that?
5: <laughs> well, I just I just want to say thank you to Clyde, thank you to all the Vietnam vets out there. We're finally getting the word out, I think, about what you did and your great service. And and uh, thank you to you, Rose, and and uh, your station for 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 letting us tell the story about these heroes on this very special day.
1: Thank you, thank you both. The book is Mended Wings, the Vietnam War experience through the eyes of ten American Purple Heart heli- Purple Heart helicopter pilots, Arthur, and former Army helicopter pilot himself colin p calhoun and also he was a u.s army helicopter of the 101st airborne division c troop captain clarence Clyde romero jr also known as bro Clyde, and retired as a colonel thank you so much to both of you again for your service and thank you for taking the time and sharing your stories on today
5: thank you thank you
1: that's it for this special edition of closer look on veterans day reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other send me an email rose at wabe.org and if you missed any of today's show it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look and you can listen to closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast it's free so subscribe to closer look wherever you like And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Again, thank you to all who have served in our nation's military. I'm Rose Scott.